Father in heaven, we thank you for the church. You sent your son, he purchased it with his blood. We are the church no matter where we're at. And Lord, we know that around the globe this is happening. We have spoken with our missionaries this week and they are doing similar things. And, and some of them that don't have this technology are gathering in small little groups to encourage one another. And so Lord, we thank you that nonetheless we are the church. We've been bought by the blood of Christ. We belong to you. And whether we can gather uh, publicly in large crowds right now or we're at home watching this live feed, we are still your church. And nothing or nobody can take that from us, Lord. So Lord, we pray now as we look at your word, you would strengthen us. Lord, help us to learn more about your character, your love, your holiness, your justice. And that you are a God who when you say something, you do it. And so teach us these truths today as we look into the scriptures together. In Jesus' name, amen. This afternoon before I came in, I checked the stats again of what's happening with this virus so that we can just keep track. How is it growing? It seems that some places um, the numbers have kind of flattened out a little bit, um, maybe coming down in some places, going up in others. There's over... Well, almost 217,000 cases right now. There's been, as of this afternoon, what is known is just under 9,000 deaths and almost 8,500 recovered. Uh, here in Volusia County, um, we have nine recorded right now that um, have the virus. Um, one of our physicians told me that they have about 10 cases at their hospital that they're looking into, maybe two or three. Uh, that's that's the stats of what's going on right now. Um, and, and Lord knows there's, there's doubtlessly more out there and we will continue to try to do our best to honor the government and, and then still educate and uh, equip our people with God's word. But some things are a little bit troubling. It is a small amount of number and I was thinking this afternoon about maybe moms against drunk driving and how many people have been killed from drunk drivers and and just so many things that we think about. We had lost so many motorcycles this last week at Bike Week that died. And, and, and yet this seems to have a grip on the world, um, the media and so forth. And it does tell you how quickly the world can be brought to its knees. One of my favorite verses comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. It reads this, after speaking of godless things and godless men, Paul said this to Timothy, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. Now listen to this. The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. Whether you have the virus or you're quarantined or whatever it may be, isn't that a comforting thought? He knows who are his. And we're gonna see that in Exodus 11 just brilliantly as we look at this text. But then the rest of the verse says this. Think about this. Everyone who names the name of the Lord, that would be Christians who believe that God saved us, that he is, he is our Savior, and, and we claim salvation through Christ alone. Those are to abstain from wickedness, the Bible says. So there's an understanding of following God, following Christ, knowing that he knows who we are, results in a lifestyle that is, that is not, not worldly, not fleshly, but a, a, a lifestyle that has a desire to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's a, dis, there's a discipline in our life to walk after him. 
um, and it's desired. It's not, not duty, but it's desired. Now, as we look at Exodus 11, this is a nation that has been in captivity for over 400 years. And God has heard their cries and their prayers, and, and yet now is coming. He allowed them to suffer for some time, but he has heard their cries and he is coming. And now we are now looking at the final plague, the 10th. We've looked at nine of them. And we're just looking at it tonight in chapter 11. It's just the introduction of it. Uh, we'll see uh, after a few more chapters, we're going to really look in depthly into the Passover, why God set that up as we work our way to when that final 10th plague comes. But, but this is, chapter 11 is the setup of this, how Moses relays this to Pharaoh and to his officials in God's instruction in this, of this coming plague. And it, it is a marvelous account, and there is so much to learn of the character of God and, and our response to him and our response to judgment, our response to sin, how we look at those things. And so um, now as you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 11. And we're going to look at just five thoughts as we go down through this text. We're going to just look at chapter 11 tonight and, uh, and rejoice in these truths. Number one, a prediction of respect and favor. A prediction of respect and favor. As I said at the end of last week's message, I believe that chapter 11 is embedded in chapter 10, particularly the verses 24 through 29. um, I don't believe that Moses came back to tell Moses, uh, Pharaoh this, after Pharaoh was very angry with him and threw him out of his court. I don't think he came back. I I think this was all happening in that. And probably in response to his anger, Moses made these charges. God spoke through Moses here. And so chapter 11 is uniquely written. And if you were to read it, you're going, well, when did this take place? It, it's kind of hard to fit in there at times. But when, but when you understand that it's embedded in chapter 10, then it makes sense. And, and I'm in good company with that. Many of the writers that I looked at said the same thing. But, but notice also, that the, all the possibilities of resolving the release of, of Israel with Pharaoh, um, they, they've come to an end. The language of this text as we go through there, there is no hope. This 10th plague is coming. I also believe that Moses knew this information as he goes into uh, report and, and respond to, Moses, uh, to Pharaoh's um, complaint about this plague and wanting it to go away. I think he already knew this. And he knew that he wouldn't keep his word. And, and so he has this on his heart. He knows his heart is hard and he knows he won't change. So Moses conveys to Pharaoh that this last strong warning regarding the final plague is coming. Look with me at verse one and two. It says, now the Lord said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from there completely. Verse two, speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. And then verse three as well. And the Lord gave the favor, gave people the favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Now, this grammatically, probably you could write in your Bible here as I did, it said, now the Lord had said to Moses. Again, I think because it fits in there. Um, And grammatically, it helps the opening to it. So Lord had told Moses this and Moses is now telling Pharaoh in chapter 10 this. So it's clear God was giving Moses 
uh, direct uh, revelation. And Moses was understanding it in his inner conscience that God was leading him. And so these phrases are important. Now the Lord had said to Moses. So he is relaying what God had given him in this direct revelation. Uh, Notice it also says in verse one there that it mentions one more plague. And and I think this is important because it informs Moses that divine judgment was coming to an end. So remember when God said that he was gonna multiply signs and wonders in the land of Egypt in chapter seven, verse three, he did not say at that time, I'm bringing 10 plagues. So at this point, most likely Moses, is, God is just leading Moses along and he, and he didn't know. So I so think it's a very interesting phrase. I'm gonna do one more. And, and I imagine that was somewhat of relief to Moses uh, and maybe to these nation, though they don't know what this plague is. Now, Pharaoh's refusal to believe further heightens the nature of these plagues. Remember, we've talked about this. The plagues seem to get in intensity. The more hard in Pharaoh's heart comes, God brings more of an intensity of the plague. And this last one, oh, this is a powerful one. And this is going to bring everyone to their knees. Now, it, um, the word plague is an interesting word. It's only used here. This, this Hebrew word for plague, there's a different, several different words for plague, but this word um, is a unique word. It's only used once in Exodus here. It's used in other places in the Old Testament and has the idea of a final blow. It, it, you, you would use the word of being struck or, or blown by it, a, a strong, strong, powerful strike. Um, and so God's word is saying there's one more final blow of judgment that I have against the powers of Egypt. Also notice in verse one, as God is revealing this revelation to Moses, he assures him that this is the final judgment and will without a doubt bring the complete release. Notice it says there at the the end, um, uh, middle of verse one, after that he will let you go. And then verse end of verse one, um, out from there completely. So this is it, this is good news. This plague is going to bring this nation. This is the job Moses was sent to do. He's, he can see the light of the end of the tunnel in a sense. He's come to do what God has said to do. And now he's at the end of that. What confidence this must have given Moses as he spoke before this angry Pharaoh. This man was angry. And, but confidence that God gave him. This is the last one. And so I think Moses spoke with great confidence here. Also notice that the promise that was given at the burning bush would now be fulfilled. If you look just back at chapter three, verse 21, just a few pages back here, Moses before the burning bush was told this by God, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty handed. So this verse is reminding us that they're going to be driven out, but they're not gonna be driven out empty handed. Verse two, back in chapter 11 says, speak now in the hearing of the people and eat that each man ask his neighbor and each woman ask. They're, they're to be given these articles of gold and silver. And so again, this is fulfillment of God's promise. Back when, think about when Moses is standing there before that burning bush, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. First of all, a bush is on fire and it's not being consumed, let alone some of this instruction that was given. But here, God, faithful to his promise, God's word, this is what I'm gonna do. We see, we're seeing the fulfillment of this coming. Notice in verse two that these both men and women are collecting articles of silver and gold from the neighbors. These, these riches will, will help them through these 40 years they're gonna go through the wilderness. But, but it's, a, it's a collection. 
and, and doubtlessly children are involved in this and, and these, you know, there's millions of Israelites and they're going around to this massive nation of great wealth and, and they're just giving them silver and gold. And, and God was providing for them. We see him do that with baby Jesus, right? Um, these kings come in and offer these great gifts of, of value to them to, to doubtlessly sustain Jesus um, and Joseph and Mary as they go back into Egypt here uh, many, many centuries after this. But um, here again, God providing. Now, like sometimes when God provides us, we don't use it wisely. We, we'll see that some of this gets used to build a golden calf. <laughs> now, that's a problem. Uh, God gave you this and, and it got misused. So good lesson there. We'll see that later on in Exodus. But this collection given by the Egyptian is evidence of a further humbling of the nation. He's humbling these people. He's bringing them to their knees. And, and think about this, the gods of Egypt could not stand against the true living God. So you have a nation of Egypt that is now going to be plundered of both riches and plundered of their understanding of their gods that they held in such high respect that can't rescue them. So now they're broke and their gods don't work. It's a bad problem for them. And they find themselves in difficult positions. Look at verse three with me. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Isn't that interesting? Boy, they, they were not in favor of them. They were slaves. They mistreated them. They were treated like a common dog, which wasn't liked. Um, but, then, but then it says, listen to this, furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, those would be magicians and officials and those giving counsel to Pharaoh, and in the sight of the people. Now, doubtlessly, when Moses wrote this through the inspiration of the, the scriptures, I, I don't think that probably is an easy one to write about yourself, but it's again, it's a, it teaches us the inspiration of scriptures. God is writing through Moses, even things that, he, that probably would feel a little bit self-serving, but he writes it because God tells him to write these things. But here's what's happening here. This is a comparison between God's chosen man versus Pharaoh and his officials. See, these guys used to be so esteemed, so great. God has elevated Moses even to their enemies. Look at him and say, wow, he is to be respected. He has gained favor from the living God. What, a, what an important thing to understand that when God, when we obey God, he gives favor to those who obey him. And not always maybe in, in this dramatic way, but God does favor those who obey him. He's pleased with it, the Bible says, when we follow his principles. So um, this is a vivid reminder that God not only protects his people, but when they obey, he gives favor in the eyes of the world. Now that will not always be the case. There's a time when the world will continue to turn on Christians and blame us for everything um, that are going to happen in the world. But, um, but there are times he does give us favor, and we sense that. Uh, even with our local principalities and officers and stuff that we minister to here, we know they've been favorable to us and kind to us because they see how we obey God and treat that. And I think there's valid reason for us to be godly people and let God show favor in our lives. Second thought. Number two, death is no respecter of persons. Death is no respecter of persons. Look at verse four with me. Moses said, thus says the Lord. Now he's back talking to Pharaoh and, and the officials. About midnight, I am going out into the midst of Egypt. Well, we'll stop right there because what we're doing is now the conversation with Moses and Pharaoh is continuing. And this conversation has to do with a timeline 
though they don't know what the timeline is, all they know is that at midnight, God's gonna do something. Doesn't say what day he's gonna do it. Now, now you might say, well, why midnight? And I, I thought about that as well and did some research and reading on how the Egyptians looked at midnight. Um, in the Greek mythology, they believed that midnight was the time the gods began to fight. This is why they praised the god of Ra, of sun, when it arose every day because those battles were over and they wouldn't be infected by those things. And, um, and so they believed at midnight these battles would happen. So here's, what does God do? Well, at midnight, the death angel's coming. And you're, you have no gods, no one who can oppose him. And he will strike. And so in a sense, when you think about this, Pharaoh is left waiting for this final blow. He doesn't know. It's gonna come at some night on midnight. And he's left with one last opportunity to come to his senses and avert calamity. And though he's not gonna do that because his heart has been hardened, um, it is still this, there's an offer, somewhat of an offer. And then the phrase that I think frightened me as I was studying this was, I am going out into the midst of Egypt. Now, frightened from the standpoint of putting my shoes in an Egyptian shoes. <laughs> think about this. You have seen nine plagues and, and God has struck from heaven in some way. He is struck with hail and lightning he struck cattle and, and created frogs and turned rivers into blood and you've never seen him. And now all of a sudden, the Bible says, I am going out into the midst of Egypt. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I, I, would, I think I would, that would be it. I'm done, I'm bowing, I'm, I'm, I'm done. The, the thought of that, that this God can control lightning bolts, can control hail, can control all the things that their powerless gods could not do nor stop is saying, I'm now coming amidst you. This would have been a terrifying revelation. And, and you know, this, this is what God is going to do. It isn't hard to study the book of Revelations and the major and minor prophets and start to see the judgment that would be poured out on the earth someday. It got me thinking about Revelation chapter six. This is at the end of the, uh, the seal judgments when he is poured out the, the seal judgments on the earth. And just listen to this. Revelation six fifteen through 17 says, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Think about that phrase in verse four in our text. I'm coming in the midst of you. That ought to rattle you. Um, if you're an Egyptian, if you're, and think about this from a practical standpoint. If you're in disobedience to God, if you've rejected God, if you rejected God's perfect sacrifice in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he comes and brings judgment, stands in the midst of you and judges. And that's why the Bible says in Revelation that these great men, small and great, will cry for the, for the mountains and the rocks and the hills to fall upon them. But notice verse five. This is what's going to happen as he comes in their midst. He says, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstone and all of the firstborn of the cattle as well. Well, the choice of the firstborn is in relationship to the Lord and his people, the nation of Israel. You say, well, why did he pick that? Well, 
And this is why. Um, Israel was his firstborn. Again, just turn back to Exodus 4, um, verse 22, real quick. Moses is the mouthpiece of, excuse me, Aaron is the mouthpiece of Moses. They're presenting themselves, their first case before Pharaoh. And this is an important verse uh, as they've come. And, and God has told them in verse 21 that they're to go back to Egypt and perform these signs and, he, and God will harden his heart. But then they are to tell Pharaoh this, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So you can see there's a connection here as God reveals that he is going to take the firstborn of all of the living and all of the humans, all the human population of Egyptians and their cattle is related. And it's because all of Egypt have been involved in exploiting the Lord's firstborn. And they refused to let them worship the Lord and they mistreated them. So it would be the firstborn that will feel this final blow of God. And the effects of that, right? Parents and so forth. In the previous plagues, there were opportunities to be rescued. Bring in your cattle. I'm sending hail. You know, there, we, we see some of those opportunities. What was interesting about this final plague is you will see that there are no exceptions. And there's nowhere to hide. And, and it'll get revealed a little more in the next coming chapters as we get to this. This death angel is coming. And he's sweeping through the land. You cannot hide and I'm taking your firstborn. You took my firstborn, my chosen one, mine who I called and made my firstborn, the one who receives my inheritance and you mistreated him and I'm coming for yours. So it's quite a statement here found in verse five. This final plague would greatly affect the entire population of Egypt. Every family would feel the, the, the grief of bitter loss. The firstborn was the, the chief heir of the family. They were, they were given the, the responsibility and they were trained to take care of the family. If, if father passes away, this was passed on to them. They had the authority over all his goods. They were equal with the father. And that yet God was going to take the firstborn. In the case of the firstborn of the Pharaoh, it was, it, it was a, the future of the nation. And and think about this, the Pharaoh dies, his firstborn would become the next incarnate God. Horus was going to be his name, what he would be called. He, and he would ascend to this divine, what they would refer to as the divine throne of Egypt. And he's going to die. Because <laughs> God's going to take that son. And his premature death would be a devastating blow to the political system, to the religious system of the land. We know that uh, Ahim, ah, uh, Amin Hatepet, I think is the name, um, Amin Tepet, I'm not good with my English, my, my Hebrew, <laughs> excuse me, my Egyptian gods or, or pharaohs, their names. But we know that he, he doesn't have a son that goes on there. In fact, another man, Tumas, Tumas is taken, Tumas IV is taken and put in his place. History tells us this. What's interesting is Tumas believed that God Ra had given him a dream that he was to ascend to the throne and that's what's recording that's the inscriptions that are there and it it legitimizes that uh, the understanding that if again if uh, Amenhotep is not have a son that it gives us an understanding that this is probably what happened 
this guy was replaced and, and what was given out on Fox News and CNN and everything else at that time was um, this guy was given a message from Ra and he becomes the next Pharaoh since Pharaoh did not have a son to replace him. Now, notice in verse five the depth of the impact of this final plague. It says from the son of Pharaoh to the slave girl. That tells us that this is from the top of society to the bottom, right? The, the palace where there, you have everything you can imagine in the palace to the slave girl behind the millstone. This is one of the lowest slavery jobs that you could have, tedious and dangerous. And, and if you lose somebody in the millstone, get somebody else. So, so the Bible's telling us, look, this is, it's going to hit everyone. Isn't that interesting? You can't hide from this final judgment of God. So many people struggle um, a little bit with this verse. They'll often ask, well, is God gonna kill babies? Does God kill babies? And, and I don't like that God killed all these babies in Egypt, and, and so later Herod kills babies, and they try to justify all those things. Some of pretty bad uh, theology there, but first off, the passage doesn't necessarily say they're all babies. In fact, probably many of them were very well-grown, could have been older, could have had families of themselves. It's the firstborn of that family, whatever it was. And so it's not necessarily small people. I think maybe we watch too many Hollywood Ten Commandment type things and we see the young boys that died or so forth. But these could have been older men, heads of homes already. And, and so that, that doesn't hold water as well. Second, people create in their own mind what they think God is like. So they really struggle with the fact that, that God would take another person's life and judge them for sin. And so that's just a bad view of, of sin and depravity. It's a skewed view of understanding of who God is. And, and it lacks, and most of the time as we try to help somebody through these things, we realize that they don't understand sin. And so sin is compromised in their own life. It's not handled well, and, 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 and so many consequences come with that. They don't understand that, that man goes a, astray at birth, that, that David said he was conceived in the womb, a sinner, um, we believe that. The Bible teaches us we're, we're deprived. We're, we do not have a relationship with God. And so none of us deserve life. The, the fact that God does not just wipe us all out is just purely the grace and mercy of our great God and Savior. However, what the question is failing to bring out is the right for God to judge. That's what fails to come to the surface here. God has a right to judge on anyone on all humans at any time. And what is truly marvelous is that he does not immediately bring judgment on man. He lets us live for quite some time at, at times, Lord. He's gracious to us because of man, mankind's sin. We're, we're rebels. We have no right before God. He, he, he has the right to judge at any moment. And he never does what's wrong. He's perfect in all that he does. Now, just think about that. He's creator, so he owns all of his creation. He's perfect in all his ways. His holiness demands justice. And so we see him actually very patient. It isn't hard to study the scriptures. Look at the judgment that brought through Noah's day. He says, Noah, I'm gonna wipe out the earth in 120 years. We won't even live 120 years. That's long beyond our lifespan. But God was gracious and patient, and that means maybe generations went by before that judgment even came. But then we see him with swift, swift judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah. He swiftly moves in judgment there. In fact, it was a hurry to get um, Lot and his daughters out. And of course, wife looked back and, you know, you're a salt shaker. It, it 
that's swift judgment there. And, and then we see a seven-day patience with Jericho. <laughs> Seven days. Walls come down, everybody dies. And then there's hundreds of years of God patient with the nation of Israel, warning them, prophet after prophet after prophet, warning them of coming judgment to turn from their ways. But what is happening here is judgment against those who willfully brought his wrath on their lives because of their sin and obstinance against God and what they did to his firstborn and would not repent. So God's divine forbearance seems to be exhausted here. I think you can say that. It, the dam broke. Judgment is coming, and this is, the, this is the announcement of that. Third thought, judgment will always be God's tool of distinction. Judgment will always be God's tool of distinction. Look at verse six and seven with me. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before or such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Well, notice in verse six that word great cry. It's a very clear image, isn't it? But what I want you to see is there's reversal of images here. Remember, it was Israel who cried out for the Lord under the weight of the slavery they were on. And God heard them. Now, now we, we see that they cried out and God sent Moses and, and, and all, of, all of this has been the grace of God. And so Israel cried out to the Lord and they responded. They cried out to Pharaoh and that was in vain, but they anguished under the grief. But God answers the cry. But here in verse six, we now see the reversal of this. The Egyptians now are crying out in vain. Who, who to whom will they cry out? The sun God? Darkness just took over him like there was no tomorrow. Who are they going to cry out? Pharaoh, he's powerless before just Moses, who is God's servant. On, who, who will act on their behalf? Who can rescue them from this death angel that is coming? Pharaoh and all of his so-called deities of Egypt have been brought to their knees. And the people's lives are in ruin. And their gods are utterly discredited and proven to be powerless. What a role reversal. And judgment shows the distinction between people. God will always show this. Notice in verse seven, the difference between God's own people and the Egyptians. Remember, the Israelites did suffer for many years. Christians suffer today. Um, and even they suffered under a few of the plagues that we see early on. But now God is going to show a clear separation in life and death. So this is different than going under um, quarantine, uh, going under um, some difficult. Even if you get sick with this virus and maybe sick to death or, or you're, very, you're not well at all. Or, um, we've all been there. I had pneumonia here a few months ago. Uh, didn't feel very well. But this is, this is different. This is the judgment of life and death now God's talking about. This is something that is remarkable. Notice that the Bible says that even a barking dog will not raise its voice in a sense. The Hebrew word for bark means something sharp. And so the idea here is there is no sharp hostility against them. Well, wait a minute. They, they've been slaves. These people have, have whipped them and beat them and done whatever they wanted to them. And now, all of a sudden, this nation of Egypt is under peril. 
their firstborn are going to be slaughtered, both man and beast. Uh, they have suffered through plagues and boils and everything you can imagine. And now the Israelites are not going to have a dog bark against them, meaning no, not even a sharp comment will be given. What an amazing protection of God on these people. It's interesting they use dogs. Dogs are, in the, especially in the ancient world, in many places still around the world, are not worshipped like pets of America. Um, we don't make movies of, they don't make movies of them and, and uh, make them talk like people and so forth. They were, they're just mainly dogs roam the streets. Now, so, certain dogs were worshipped by Egypt and in palaces and things like that. But the common dog was, was something you, you was undesirable, was contempt. I've been in places like India and Russia and so forth and they said, don't touch those dogs. Those things are full of rabies. They attack people. You know, you want to, Americans, we go see dogs, we want to pet them. Not over there. And particularly here, so it's not, this is not a great comment about dogs here. Uh, so when it says the dog with a snarl, it means that it's not even going to show any hostility. They're, they're going to plunder this nation and nobody's going to say a word to them. That's the power of God. That's the power of God to take a nation, captivity for over 400 years, and when they leave, they give them all their finances and don't say anything bad to them. Only God can do such remarkable things. So God is marking the difference between the blessing of, of Israel and the judgment of Egypt. God is saying not even the slightest sign of opposition will come to his nation in departure. And they will go out unharmed, undisturbed, while they leave Egypt plundered. What a role reversal. But remember, this is not just deliverance from slavery. I, I just want to re- reiterate this. This is deliverance from death. This last plague is about dying. It's about death. And God is going to deliver them from death. Um, most people would rather be a slave than die. Uh, you want life. You fight for life. A human is designed to fight for life. This is what God is going to rescue them. And so Passover will become a heightened explicit understanding of God's providence, God's love, how he separates his people and protects them. Passover is going to teach that the blood that was put on that doorpost protected them from death. And it'll be celebrated all the way up to the final lamb. The final lamb will be the final Passover lamb. And because of his blood, his propitiating work, his finished work, God passes over us. We're going to look at that in the coming weeks. These next chapter cha- chapters really highlight the atoning work of Christ. And we'll look at those as we go. One last statement there in verse 7. Notice it says that, that you may also, that, um, excuse me, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So what the Lord was doing was by design in order to display his sovereign choice. God has a sovereign choice of people. He always has, he always will. He knows them from the foundations of the world and he can control that. And I don't want you to miss that. He has, he has an elect. He's always had that. And so here he is showing the difference of that. And it is the Lord alone who has the ability to make those kind of choices. And it's his initiative it's God's initiative here. It isn't anybody going, oh, pick me. It's God's initiative of what he does. Fourth thought. Judgment will make the strong weak and the proud humble. Judgment will make the strong weak and the proud humble. Look at verse eight with me. All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me. This is Moses speaking on behalf of God, saying, go out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that, I will go out. 
And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Well, remember, this particular discussion is aimed at Pharaoh and his officials. You notice in verse seven, just back just a little bit, it says that you may understand. Notice the latter half of verse seven. It's a plural here. It's referring back to these guys, Pharaoh and his servants, Pharaoh and his officials here. And so this divine message is intended to to educate, rebuke those who denied God and opposed his plan. So in verse eight, Moses spells out the consequences. Those who are still alive are gonna go through this final plague in Egypt. So if the consequence of death were not enough, think about this, if, if this death angel comes through, if that's not enough, these officials right here that he's speaking with, they're gonna come and fall on their face before Moses. These are men with tremendous power and authority and wealth. These are the right hand to the Pharaoh, the quote, God of, the God of Egypt. The Bible says they're gonna come and they're gonna fall down before Moses. So you think death was bad? <laughs> yeah, that's terrible. But at the end, they're gonna, this is what they're gonna do. They're gonna bow down. Now, notice the phrase says, they will come down. There are some believe that it's a phrase that means the royal palace will be brought to their knees. But I, don't, I think it's better rendered that they're actually gonna go seek out Moses. Maybe it means them traveling to Goshen to bow down before him there. So these haughty nobles who have never bowed to anybody but Pharaoh will now be humbled and they will show honor and respect to a living God through bowing down to Moses. Remember, Moses is a type. He's a type of Christ. He's representing God and these men will bow down. In chapter 12, we'll see this soon. In chapter 12, verse 31 and 30 through 33, um, they will beg Moses and the Israelites to leave. They will beg them to leave. And so the humiliation of Egypt is almost complete. And you say, well, why is it they're leaving? Aren't it complete? Well, there's one swimming lesson that still has to happen in the Red Sea, you remember? Um, they're gonna drown. He's gonna drown the, the army. So just thinking out just a moment. Now they're, they're plundered economically. They're plundered with their firstborn. And now their army their, their power, their authority, and their na- to rule as a, a massive nation, that's gonna get drowned. So God is going to bring them to their knees. What's interesting here, brothers and sisters, there's no response recorded in the Bible from Pharaoh. What, I, I, was he stunned? This strong man, he, he says nothing to this? Did he realize the gravity of the situation? Did he wish he would have bowed many plagues ago? Uh, all we know is that the Bible says his heart remained hard and then at the end of 10, he, he wants him out that he'd never see his face again. And so all we know is his heart remains hard. Notice in verse eight, he, Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? I, I think first of all, it reflects the Lord's anger at Pharaoh and his hard heart and his deceitfulness. I think it reflects God's view of sin. Remember, Moses is, is God's representative here. I also think it reflects God's displeasure in, in the death of the wicked. I, I think we can put that together. God takes no pleasure in Ezekiel chapter 33, um, actually verse 18, chapter 18 first, when Ezekiel is a prophet and, and the nation is going into captivity and in captivity, Ezekiel sees those, uh, those things happen. He's speaking for God, says, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. 
Later on in chapter 33, verse 11, he said to them, I say, as I live, declares the Lord God, he uses both two, two different names for himself. I take no death in the pleasure of wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then would you die, O house of Israel? So there he speaks to Israel in the wicked. Remember, not all, not all Abraham's seed belonged to God. Uh, there were many that did not come to God by faith. Uh, but I think what's interesting here is, is there's, there's a hotness to Moses' anger. And, I, and, and he knows that he doesn't, I don't think Moses wants to see people die. I, I don't think Moses wants to see Pharaoh's son die. He didn't want to see all these hundreds of thousands of, of firstborn dead. I don't think he wanted that. I think this was difficult for him. Look, he had, was raised in Pharaoh's palace. He was loved by the daughter of Pharaoh. Certainly there was, there was a, he's a human. He, he had to feel this. And it was frustrating. Have you ever been with somebody who won't repent of sin? And you spend a tremendous amount of time with them and you plead and you beg. Uh, you know, as elders, we have to do this at times, particularly heading into church discipline with somebody. I've seen elders on their knees crying before men, pleading with them to repent and turn from their sin. Uh, I, I think part of this hot anger that we see in this passage is the grieving, deep grieving, because Moses knew who God was. He knew he wouldn't revoke that promise. People are gonna die, Pharaoh, because you will not believe. And there's hot passion here that's coming out of him for Pharaoh. And he's upset with him because he knows, he, he may know the firstborn of, of Egypt. Doubtless he does. He knows people in that palace who are gonna die. So I think the impact of these plagues was powerful on Moses as he watched this happen. And through these, just think about the interaction with Pharaoh and these officials. Doubtless he felt for them. And he knew the gravity that was coming. I, I think white hot passion for Christ and his glory makes us disturbed with sin. You Scott, why, why are you preaching on this stuff? Why don't you preach just on the love of God and so forth? I hope I am. I hope you've heard that love of God in here. But, but I think it's it's understanding Christ, understanding what he went through, being, understanding how, how much it cost. And first we look at ourselves and we, we, we condemn ourselves in some way. We, we're, we're angry with ourselves when we sin. I, I, I've learned to hate my sin. It's, it's, it put my savior on the cross. And so I think as Christians, we look at the sin of the world and it, and it angers us in a, in a righteous way. Because we know what it is. And, and, when, and think about this, brothers and sisters. When we see someone reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that should really shake us up. It's just like Moses. We can see somebody who rejects the gospel and go, the death angel's coming for you. If you continue to reject the gospel, and look, we know God's sovereign, and that's his job. We don't know it. We don't know who has an E on their forehead or not. We just preach the gospel. But I don't know about you. When I see somebody reject the gospel... And, and someone you love and you're working with, oh man, there's a, there's a fever to that because it bothers us. People are gonna go to hell. They are gonna be cast into a, a burning lake where Satan and his demons are. Final death is a, an eternal death and it should bother us. And I think our hearts should be broken over people who are coming to judgment. Last thought, number five. Trust God even 
when he does not do what you want him to do. Boy, we've all been here, haven't we? Trust God even when he does not do what you want him to do. Verses nine and 10, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh is not, will not listen to you. I think he's referring to this white heart, this white, hot, white, uh, white hearted, white hot uh, uh, display that Moses had. He was, he was fiery at the end. And so God says to him, look, Pharaoh's not gonna listen to you. And here's why. So that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And not just then. Remember, we looked last week, and we looked at Psalm after Psalm. It's part of the education. We have it in our own education. We teach our kids um, great truths of God. Here's who he is. Here's what he can do. See, this was to go on, to be multiplied. But verse 10, Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened the Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. I believe in these verses... These last two verses are designed to encourage Moses, actually. As humans, we are so limited to our ability to see the heart. And I think, in a way, God is saying, here's his heart. You've done what I've asked you to do. And that, but that's why God gives us his word. Think about that. I mean, he, he wants Pharaoh to repent. He does not want to see his death, but God gives us his word. We, we run into this all the time. We see, we see things that God does and we don't quite understand or, or things that happen in this world, but God gives us his word so we can see the heart of men. And, and, and we don't have to judge that person. We can actually look at the Bible and say, oh yeah, this is what happens when you reject the Lord Jesus. This is what sin does. The Bible talks about sin and at first glance turns into lust and lust gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to, to death, right? The Bible teaches us that stuff. So the Bible tells us this is what happens. So even though I think Moses really wanted Pharaoh to, to repent, I'm sure, or maybe people within the kingdom, he has God's word. And, and that's what we have. And see, this is why we read and study and teach from the word of God. This is why we don't depend on our own emotions and feelings all the time. They'll lead us astray. We turn to God's word and know and understand what he is doing. We know and understand what he's like. We know and understand what he says. And that's such an important thing for us. Because if we just go at the world and go, well, I don't know what God's doing. Well, study. He's not hiding things from us. He's revealed himself in the word of God. In verse nine, I, I think there's nothing that surprises God. And I think he's saying, look, none of these negotiations have surprised me. Things would go just as the Lord had predicted. And I think that's comfort. Okay, God, I did what you told me to do. It's in your hands. I think it's also a reminder that the wages of sin is death. And, and though we are passionate for the lost to know Christ, though we sacrifice for that, that gospel message at times, we're assured that if if, if rejected, death comes. It's inevitable. It, it just comes. And, and I think what's happening to this nation is, is death has two faces. There's a spiritual death that lies over this, and then there's a physical death, which all lead to an eternal death. So man rejects God's word, shows that he's spiritually dead, and then eventually the second death comes. He dies a physical death, but a second death comes, and that's eternal damnation. And, and, but God still is, has that under control. He separates people. He knows who's are his. Now, for Pharaoh, defeat showed that the gods of Egypt could not protect him or his people. His, there's nothing there. They can't stop this. 
and soon the armies will be destroyed as well. And this displays that there is no political, societal, governmental, or any other authority that can resist God. They can't stop him. And in coming days, we're going to need to hold on to this. You know, we were talking before this, uh, I think Pastor Jason and I, had, just how quickly churches were able to be shut down. Now, we're shut down for the protection of our people and so forth, but didn't take much. And all the churches of this nation shut down like that. You could see where, where if they decide to say, we don't like your teaching, we don't like the God of the Bible, we've had enough of you. We don't like your view on marriage. We don't like your view on gender. We don't like any of that. You will no longer be able to do that. And they can shut you down. And so we realize how dependent upon we are God, but, but, but God isn't stopped by that. Our, our missionary friends are living with this already in many places around the world. He has power over these things. And as we finish out these 10 plagues, don't miss the extensive detail that God wor- God's word has. And one of the things I love studying God's word and love preaching it to you is to study it and see the detail in these things of who God is. You get to know him so much better. So his holiness, as we see this, demands judgment. And he will bring it about. Egyptians, as we close this out, were made to realize that opposing God was not a light matter. You want to stand against God? You want to hear what he has to say? Here is what God says, thus says God, and you go against that? Mm. Friend, if you're listening to this and you're living in sin and you know it, you know what God's word says, you've been raised that way, you've heard that taught maybe in Sunday schools or college groups or in church or whatever it may be, and you are living in sin, you need to look at this. God judges sin. He is a holy God. It cost his son's life. And, and yes, if we are true believers, listen, if we're true believers, he forgives us. He, or we, can, we can find forgiveness in it. But if it's a habit of us to live godlessly and, and reject his word, it, it, what it tells us is there's no fruit on the tree. We're, we're confessors of God, but we are not those who actually are known by him. And so these are some strong warnings. And, and just one last thought on this. These warnings are, are not to be despised. And, and his extreme patience and grace with mankind, I want you to think about this, is not to be mistaken for indifference. You understand that? He is very patient and very kind. And you may be in sin, you go, well, he didn't strike me dead or anything. Ooh, do not take his patience and kindness as indifference. He sees all things. Jesus, when he was on this earth, walked in the temple and said he knows all men's hearts. He wouldn't give himself over to them because he knew man's hearts. God knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows when we lie down, sit down, move. He knows everything. He knows all our days ordained to us. We as Christians find that as great comfort. If you're not a Christian, if you're living in sin and it may prove that you don't know him, those are fearful things. But do not look at the patience of God as indifferent. Indifference. So what happened in Egypt should be a warning for every generation, every individual, Do not trifle with God's word. He's a glorious God, but he does judge sin. Do not not reject his gospel. Repent, walk with God. Ask him to give you a desire to love him with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Ask him to develop that in your life. Build spiritual disciplines. Read your Bible. (laughs) Look ahead in chapter 12, what I'm gonna be on next. Read in Mark 13 what we're looking at. Spend your time reading some Bible each and every day. 
Build spiritual disciplines. Pray. Talk to this God who can, who can kill the body and the soul, as we were reminded on Sunday. Oh, get to know your God, and you'll see that he is a loving God. He's a great God to his children. And so we're reminded, John says, as he writes some of his last epistles, says, see how great the Father's love has bestowed upon us, that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. We are God's children. And as you look at this, and though not every Israelite is going to heaven that was in here, so we know many of them rejected God and died in the wilderness, and it doesn't mean just because they were a Jew or an Israelite that they go to heaven. It was only those who came to him by faith alone. That's how God is always saved. But there is a uniqueness to how he cares for his children, how he watches over us. Plagues, viruses, drunk drivers, illnesses, Oh, he's got you in his hand. If you belong to him, if you're truly a saved individual, God owns you, he holds you. Nothing can happen to you. And so we, this is disturbing, this virus and all this goes on, but we know we're in God's hand because he knows that we belong to him. He's revealed himself to us. So pursue him, pursue him. Confess sin, turn from it, walk with your Lord. After I pray here, there'll be a short video of a, explanation that we gave from the elders the other day. If you haven't seen it, we encourage you to stay online for a moment there and you'll see the video recorded. But let's pray and then we'll see you again uh, at 10.30 Sunday morning. We'll have a full band here. We're gonna worship. There'll be scripture reading. All that'll happen, but you'll be watching at home on the couch. We trust you'll have your Bibles, your family gathered. Grab a neighbor. Find somebody to, to gather. I mean, you know, we can be under 10, you know, 10 people together. Get, find somebody that's healthy. Invite them over. Great chance to hear God's word together. And we will study God's word and rejoice together. Let's pray and then we'll be done. Father, thank you for this time in the word. We thank you for the reminder of our God who always deals with sin. And yet you are this patient, kind God. Long-suffering, the Bible says. You suffer long with us. You're, you suffer patiently with us. And yet you will judge sin. And that's what your son came to die for. And that's the good news. If it's sin, we can be saved from it through Jesus Christ. We don't have to try to be better than sin. We don't have to try to beat sin on our own. Christ beat it for us. And Lord, if that truly takes place in our hearts, where we understand that, you plunge that knowledge, we have a desire to walk with you and live with you. And so we thank you for the things we learn. Thank you for the book of Exodus. It's so real. And especially today, and as we suffer through this as a nation and a world, it reminds us that it wouldn't be much, it wouldn't be take you much, Lord, to bring judgment upon this world. And Lord, but you will care for your children even through those things. Lord, thank you for our church. We ask that you would protect them. If there's anyone sick, Lord, we ask that you would heal them, Lord, and you would give them strength. Um, we pray for people that would reach out and phone calls would be made that, that we would care for one another through these things. We pray for the witness of the gospel, Lord, that we'd use this to share the gospel with people. May we not waste this beautiful trial that you've given us. Lord, until we get back together again, I trust that we'll all continue to grow in your grace and knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen.